Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Robert Allen Bartlett. Robert is a practicing alchemist and author. In 1974, he left San Jose State University to pursue an intensive course of alchemical study at the Paracelsus Research Society, later known as Paracelsus College, under the guidance of Dr. Albert Rydell, a.k.a. Frater Albertus. In 1976, at the prompting of Frater Albertus, Robert returned to college at Boise State University to complete his degree in chemistry with the view of working at the newly formed Paralab, a commercial offshoot of Paracelsus College. In 1979, he received his Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry and immediately began work at Paralab as chief chemist. Working closely with Frater Albertus, Robert researched and developed a wide range of mineral and metallic preparations following Western and Eastern alchemical traditions for applications in alternative healthcare. Later, Robert was selected by Frater Albertus to become a director of research at TriStar, the future vision of Frater Albertus, which would combine the Paracelsus College, Paralab, and a healing arts center into one complex. Unfortunately, with the death of Frater Albertus in 1984, both the college and Paralab closed its doors, and the TriStar dream was never realized. Robert is the author of, among other titles, Real Alchemy, The Way of the Crucible, The Temper of Herbs, and most recently, The Book of Antimony. You can find Robert's work at spagericus.com, spelled S-P-A-G-Y-R-I-C-U-S. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So uh, how and when did you find the subject of alchemy? Uh, I started out early when I was a kid. I, uh, I had a laboratory of my own since I was about, I don't know, seven or eight, nine. Um, I had a rock collection originally and um, found that there are ways you could test rocks, you know, um, heat them up with different salts under a blowpipe and scratch them on tiles and drop acid on them. Uh, um, This was all great fun to me. So I uh, scoured the local library looking for works on how to test minerals and and that's where I ran into a, a section on uh, books on alchemy. Uh, so I checked a few out and just got fascinated by the whole process and the artwork. Um, just the whole mystical, magical aura of the whole thing that lured me. And uh, I began uh, studying alchemy. There wasn't very much practical stuff, at least not that I could follow. (laughs) Um, It's still kind of obscure and hard to uh, fathom at all. Uh, But I found a a book or two which had some uh, practical guidance. Uh, One of those was the uh, story of alchemy and uh, early chemistry by uh, John Maxon Stillman. It gave me my first practical insights into alchemy. Um, and so I uh, began playing around with those ideas in my little laboratory. Um, started learning how to distill things. My first my first retort was a light bulb, which I gutted the insides out and stuck a bent tubing on and was able to distill wine from it. Um, But like I say, not a lot of practical stuff uh, 
to guide me, I uh, I ran into an article by, um, well, since it was so magical, mystical, uh, I had to pursue that aspect as well. And, uh, and so there was a, a girl down the street who was into astrology, and she gave me my first lessons in astrology. Um, I started studying magic and, uh, you know, medieval magical systems, uh, witchcraft, which was popular at that time. Uh, this was early in the, uh, 70s. Uh, and I ran into an article by Israel Regardi, you know, about alchemy, practical laboratory alchemy, um, and he mentions a name, uh, Fragile Bertus and the Paracelsus Research Society, or the PRS. Uh, so I wrote them and uh, soon received a, a package which had their information and uh, an application for class. So I signed up for class and uh, got accepted, which was... I was very happy. He was only accepting 12 people at a time. And so I began my first class in April 1974. Uh, and it was a two-week-long class. You know, um, class would start at 9 in the morning and go till 5. But then there was lab work that pretty much went uh, continuously. And, and you're cloistered there with, you know, 12 other like-minded souls looking into alchemy. Uh, there were no newspapers, TVs, radios, anything like that. Um, you're pretty much cloistered in there and very intensely involved in alchemy. Uh, so this went on for like two weeks. And that was the Prima class, which set you up for Secunda, which was the following year, and then Tertia all the way up to uh, the Septa class. So seven years, two weeks each, and, you know, an intensive class each year. Um, it was a couple of years into it that uh, Brad Albertus mentioned um, revamping and getting uh, Paralab up and running. And Paralab was supposed to be like a commercial offshoot of the whole teachings. So uh, you'd have the teachings, but Paralab would actually make the products and then make them available for um, research and for alternative healthcare uses. Um, <clears throat> so I expressed uh, interest in working there and Froder. Uh, he told me to go back to school. I had dropped out. You know, I was a couple years into my chemistry degree when I dropped out and uh, started attending the PRS classes and moved to the primitive area of central Idaho. Um, so he recommended I go back to school, finish my degree, and, which I did. Best advice ever. <laughs> um so I went back, finished my degree, and uh, became the chief chemist at Paralab on graduation. 
and I worked closely with uh, Fred Albertus and uh, Dr. David Shine. He was the medical advisor. And we developed the, the whole line of mineral extractives, uh, the uh, cell salt line. Um, and at one point, uh, I'd been doing analytical processes on the different oils and materials we were producing. And we didn't have a lot of analytical equipment available, so I used what I could, and I, I uh, adapted some thin-layer chromatography methods. And I showed the results to Frodo Albertus one day, and he got very excited, and he he uh, he said this kind of stuff doesn't exist anywhere else, and he he told me to keep doing that, gather as much analytical information as I could on all the various products because it didn't really exist anywhere else, and uh, he he said that before it would be accepted medicinally. Uh, we'd have to have some kind of backup like that, you know, to go along with it. So um, after Paralab closed and Fred Albertus died, uh, I kept myself employed as a chemist at the at the bench level uh, just so I would have access to very fancy analytical equipment. Uh, and it's been interesting actually to see analytical equipment evolve over time from the 70s up to, well, to the present time. Um, so I've had access to fancy pieces of high-tech equipment uh, with which to analyze the various oils and substances derived from alchemical processes. And I've amassed a, a mountain of information data on, on various products and uh hoping to make all that available. First installment was the uh, recent book on antimony. So a lot of the analytical information I gathered concerning antimony, um, how to make it, what it is, uh, it's all in there. So uh, that's the first of several volumes on uh, mineral and metallic alchemy that I hope to put out. So I have all this information gathered, and I want to make it all available uh, for other workers to uh, have access to that. And so I'm currently working on additional books that will present all of that analytical information. So that's about where I am today now. You mentioned cell salts, and I, I, I look forward to asking you about that here in a minute. Uh, what other what other books do you have uh, coming? I have, uh, if you don't mind me asking, well, I'm working on the mineral works now. Um, although I have, I have volumes for plant works, water works, animal works, uh, mineral works. Um, there are a lot of plant works out there, not too much on minerals. So I was going to concentrate on the mineral alchemy right now. So I'm gathering together all of my information, piecing it together, um, getting it ready to uh, formulate two volumes. I think it will take maybe three. <laughs> I got a lot of information on 
on the whole thing. So it may turn out to be three volumes on mineral and metallic alchemy, which incorporates all of the analytical data accumulated, all the various processes tried, um, successes and failures and things like that. Um, so I will make all that available to other workers. Um, and that'll probably be followed up by uh, another work on, well, I have the herbal works, but I also have like a general theory and history of the practice of alchemy. Um, it kind of follows the development of alchemy from ancient Egypt all the way up to uh, the present day. Um, so it's uh, talks about history and theory uh, as things developed and things went along. So um, that'll be another whole volume by itself. Yep, very much looking forward to all of those. Uh, while I have you, I'd like to talk about the salts, uh, particularly bot uh, botanical or lixivial salts, the soluble alkaline mineral of the plant. What do you believe is an ideal calcination temperature? Uh, 900 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 642 degrees Fahrenheit, something else? Yeah, I I tend to keep it 800 or below uh, Celsius. I know some people like to blast fire it up to 1300, but the, the, uh, the salts begin to melt around 850. So... Uh, you run the risk of fusing them into your crucible and making them very hard to get back out. Um, so I generally keep it around 700 to 800 degrees. And you can easily get that with just a simple, you know, gas fire to camp stove, something like that. Um, I will occasionally uh, finish it off in the broiler, in the oven, just spread it out in a dish and put it under your broiler for a while to get it uh, to a light gray. Um, there is also a trick using water. Uh, sometimes the salts just don't seem to want to go any further, getting lighter. So if you moisten them with a little bit of distilled water or rainwater and turn it into a paste, uh, you could dry that and calcine it again. It'll get lighter. Um, take what you get and moisten it again with rainwater to a paste and let that dry. Calcine it again. It'll get even lighter. So you keep doing that moistening with water and drying, calcining, moisten with water, dry, calcine. Keep doing that cycle um, three or four times and you'll end up with nice light, white colored salts. Um, so it's a good trick to help get your salts white um, using fairly low temperatures. And do you have any uh, beyond the camp stove and, and the um, and the broiler? Do you have any otherwise kiln preferences or recommendations? I'll use a, like a glass fusing kiln with the top down um, firing. And I also like solar calcinations using a Fresnel lens because of the photodynamic aspect, not just the thermodynamic. Um, and, and that there's something about that concentrated solar kind of plasma-esque energy that's being concentrated on the minerals. Do you have any other 
preferences or recommendations? Um, generally, I use the gas, but I, I also have a, a large Fresno lens. It's about two and a half by three feet long, I think. Um, it, it gets hot enough to milk granite. <laughs> um, so I, I do occasionally use that to calcine uh, herbs or, or just to focus particular types of light on it. Um, but other than that, I, I use just a simple gas, you know, camp stove, you know, things you could buy. Any, any hardware store has a little gas uh, propane stove. Uh, they're easy to use. You can find them anywhere. Um, you can get the fuel at any supermarket. You know, the little gas cylinders they sell. Um, so that's my general go-to. I have used kilns, but like I say, uh, things start to melt around 850, 900 degrees. So I try to keep it below that. Other than that, I have used uh, porous crucibles. You know, generally the crucibles that you you get are porcelain and they're very tight as far as their porosity. Yeah, I use uh, fused quartz. What, what, what do you recommend on crucibles? Um, I've used crucibles that were handmade using just a low-fire clay, but incorporated into the clay, I put like dried horse dung. <laughs> we have horses, so <laughs> i got to use stuff up <laughs> um, I take a take a handful of horse dung mix it with the clay form the crucibles and then fire those and once the horse dung burns out you have a, a certain amount of porosity in the crucible and now instead of the flame hitting the uh, bottom of your crucible and, and going around it the hot vapors pass right through the porous crucible and your salts get white much faster. They get more air, they get more heat from the uh, gases coming up through the crucible itself. On on the production of salts, is there uh, any way to add energetic or otherwise value to the salt during production? Um, like the use of the Fresnel lens to concentrate light or... Uh, sound waves or magnetics or any any other way to to add some something to the salt during production yeah um i've used the the fresno lens to focus particular uh, planetary energies or moonlight onto salts moon in particular phases or signs um to treat the salts um, i'm also experimenting now with using uh old school uh, crystal radio techniques you know back in the beginnings of radio they used crystals as detectors for the radio and it would what they call rectification uh, it would rectify the the sine wave it would cut off half of the wave so that instead of canceling itself out uh, you get the one side of the wave so now you can convert that to audio and, and listen to it but um, I'm using the same techniques passing radio waves through different crystals um, which are immersed in a uh, an extraction medium and the ultimate plan is to uh, 
form a uh, radio telescope antenna so that I can channel specific planetary energies, uh, radio energies from from different planets through the crystal into the extraction medium. It's kind of a a weird take on uh, making gem elixirs. In the past, I've taken the uh, Voyager satellite magnetic readings from the different planets um, and and run those through a, a hybrid amp uh, onto a magnetic coil and on and then um, broadcast that onto water for for different um, agricultural applications. So, yeah. Wow, yeah. And I do want to talk to you about water here in a sec. Um, but while we're still on the salts, what do you think the value of the salt is in a spagyric? They're very important. That's what makes the spagyric really. Um, you know, we have when we have physical classes here during prima classes. There's always somebody you know who uh, is a <clears throat> skilled in using um, dousing methods, and they would follow the the process of making a a spagyric because we do a demo in class of making a, a spagyric. And always when we get to the point where we add the salts back into the tincture, something magical happens. You know, the, the pendulum starts going ballistic, swinging out at right angles, you know, um, whatever dowsing method, you know, they're using it peaks out and surprises even them that they're getting such a response. Um, so something happens when you add the salts back into the tincture. And um, and they talk about uh, oxidation reduction potentials. Uh, it's how your body perceives the tincture, um, and and this goes back to something that George Starkey wrote. George Starkey um, he wrote under the pseudonym of Uranius Philalethes. He gave Robert Boyle his first lessons in in alchemy. Um, anyway, he says that whatever reaches down to the balsam of life has to be of a saline nature because if a salt is taken, um, it it's neutralized by the stomach. And if a sulfur tincture is taken, it gets metabolized in the first digestion. But when the two are combined, uh, they turn into something new and something miraculous happens. Uh, they become a glorified being. Uh, a lot of the alchemists describe it as, as that. Um, but the salts make all the difference. You know, when you take a tincture, just store-bought tincture, um, not spagyric, you'll put it in your mouth and your tongue will say, you know, what's this stuff? And they'll send it to the stomach for for digestion. And you'll lose a portion of the medicinal qualities of the plant uh, by metabolism. Um, when you add the salts, the oxidation reduction potential is such that your body perceives it as already digested and good to go. So... As soon as it hits your mouth, it's being absorbed by your mucous membranes, um, and you get the full effect 
you don't get it broken down by metabolism. So the salt changes it such that you will obtain the full medicinal qualities without it being metabolized in any way. Um, as opposed to without the salts, you know, you, you run the risk that it will become at least partially metabolized and you'll lose a portion of its medicinal quality. So addition of the salts is very important to um, bring out that full medicinal quality that the plant has to offer. Is there any difference in the process of making a salt from animal material uh, versus making one from botanical material? Not really. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of animal materials tend to form a glassy solid when you calcine them. Uh, and and here's a, a good place for that water trick. You know, take that glassy solid and add some water, which it will immediately dissolve into. Uh, dry it out, calcine it again, add water, calcine it, add water, calcine it. Do that several cycles, and you'll end up with a nice white salt that way. Um, another way of treating the salts is using uh, vinegar. You know, you can you can do it the traditional way of leaching out with water to get the water soluble alkalis, which is the you know the essential salt of the plant according to the traditional ways. You can also extract with vinegar. Instead of using water on the ash, use uh, just white 5% vinegar um, and do your leaching with that. You know, most of the ash is uh, calcium carbonate, um, which is not water soluble. Uh, you'll have calcium, magnesium, as carbonates or oxides, um, and that's really the bulk of the ash. In fact, when you calcine something, you're turning it into a calx, which is uh, an old word for chalk. So in calcination, you're calcinating it, uh, turning it into a chalk-like material. But the calcium, like I say, it's not soluble in water. You'll only get the uh, potassium carbonate and any sodium if it's in there uh, as carbonate or sulfate. You'll get that uh, water leaching it out. Uh, but all the rest of the material in there will be um, part of your deadhead. You know, it's not water soluble. Um, but using the vinegar, you'll get the full complement of mineral salts that the plant has to offer, not just the uh, water-soluble uh, potassium, which is only about 10 to 20 percent of the ash in most plants. Um, the bulk of it, like I say, is calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate or oxide. Uh, so when you extract with vinegar, you get the full palette of salts coming out. Uh, you'll get the calcium, the magnesium, any transition metals like iron or copper or manganese. Uh, these will all be 
dissolved into the um, the vinegar, and you'll end up with oh five times the amount of salt that you would just water leaching it. Uh, and then the small amount of deadhead that's left over is called the fixed earth, which which still has its utility. So, you know, in alchemy, it's rare that you throw anything away. But that fixed earth can be used to sublimate other materials. It's kind of like a, uh, a padding or a binder that helps to separate particles out so they don't stick together and tend to um, sublimate much more readily in that form. Uh, so the vinegar-soluble salts are interesting because, uh, like I say, you'll get five times the amount of salt. You get the full complement of uh, minerals that the plant has to offer, not just the potassium salts, but, uh, like I say, the calcium, magnesium, any transition metals like iron or copper. Um, those will all be in the vinegar soluble portion and and they tend to take on colors you know i've gotten you know uh, violet colored salts uh, aqua green uh, along with the yellows and reds and uh, even a celestial blue salt came out of one plant really nice and so depending on what metals the plant has accumulated in its lifetime those will come out with the vinegar and you'll you'll get a uh, interesting uh, palette of salts that way um, often very colored like I say um, but here you get all the salts not just the the alkali soluble salt so and, one time I was doing a, a salt of uh, turmeric it was a red turmeric and I was using a triple distilled water and I got the celestial blue and I've been wondering since what what that was do you have any idea what would have done that with just uh, distilled water yeah, possibly copper. Okay. Um, plants will bioaccumulate different metals. Um, in fact, they're using that that idea currently to mine gold. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a, a certain type of mustard, I think it's common in India, that bioaccumulates gold. So as the plant is growing, it accumulates gold into the tissues of the plant and in the mining of gold they they'll mine it and then they process the gold to get as much out but but they have leftovers which they call the tailings and they put these tailings out in a pile or in a pond they call the tailings pond in hopes that in the future there'll be some technology that can recover the gold out of it which would be um, too expensive to do with current technology. Uh, there's gold in there, but it costs more to get it out than it's worth. Um, so they pile that tailings aside, hoping that one day there's a simple, effective way to get it out. And one of the ways they're finding to do that is just to spread those tailings out, plant this type of mustard in there, and let it grow. And then they come and harvest the mustard and calcine it and leach out the salts. And from that, they can uh, give, they can get the gold back that the plant has bioaccumulated in its tissues. 
So from the plant ash, you know, they'll they'll derive the gold. Uh, so different plants will absorb different metals in its lifetime. Uh, blues, I generally suspect copper as being uh, the source. It reminds me of a, a part of the uh, Rasa Jala Nidhi, the Indian alchemical text, and how they'd use, um, they'd make preparations out of uh, earthworms from certain soils that had gold or, or silver in them. Yeah, um, yeah. I like a lot of the old Indian techniques. They're, um, they're cheap and easy. Um, they use readily available materials, um, low-tech. So back to the salts. Um, sol ammoniac, salt of the wise, uh, ammonium chloride. How important is it in these preparations, if at all? And if so, why? Sal ammoniac is, represents the volatile or spiritual salt. Um, and and it's very important to have, especially in cases of making the vegetable stone. Uh, it it enhances the penetrating power of the medicine uh, immensely. In fact, salamoniac uh, in the Ayurvedic tradition uh, in India um, is one of a handful of materials which will strengthen all 15 principles. Um, you know, in, in Ayurveda, you have the three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, and each of those principles have five sub-principles. Well, salamoniac is one of the ingredients which will stimulate and strengthen all of those 15 principles. Um, so medicinally by itself, the salamoniac is, uh, is very powerful. Um, but in conjunction with your plant, now you've added the spiritual side of the salt along with the, the heavier fixed salts. Uh, and it becomes much more penetrating uh, along with, you know, it's, it's medicinal qualities, uh, like I just mentioned. Um, there are ways of getting the salt out. Some are uh, more lucrative than others. Uh, one way I found that, that works, although it's smelly and messy, is uh, a method described by Isaac Holland. Uh, and this is where you take a plant and powder it and put it into a retort. And distill the plant by degrees so you start off slow and gently raise the temperature and there's no water in there it's just the plant so you put the plant in the retort start raising the temperature and first will come out some water and then it'll start smoking and you'll see a golden distillate and then as the temperature goes up you'll start seeing uh, drops of a blood red oil distilling over and trapped in that oil is the volatile salt. They will combine and come over together. They'll distill over together. Um, so now you collect that oil, and they call it the stinking oil. And if you ever do this, you'll understand why. It, it smells like a really bad day at the barbecue. Um, take that oil and 
shake it with some distilled water or rainwater, and the sal ammoniac is soluble in the water, so it will disperse into the water, and the oil will float back up to the top. Now you just separate the water layer out and evaporate it down, and you'll end up with your uh, volatile salt of you know whatever plant you're working with. So it's uh, it's time consuming, and like I say, it smells bad, but it, it it's one of the more uh, successful ways of getting salmoniac out of your plant materials. In uh, Real Alchemy, you state that alchemy has been described by many of the ancient masters as a sort of, quote, celestial agriculture, and that, uh, quote, there are many connections between gardening and the alchemical world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, everything is connected. (laughs) Uh, Celestial agriculture in the sense that the plants we're working with are mirrors of planetary energy. They're depositories of that planetary energy. Um, they resonate with specific, you know, types of energy, which are related to the, the different planets. Um, and that's really what you're doing, cultivating a specific type of planetary energy um, and there are whole astronomical methods for treatment um, how to make medicines based on your natal chart for example you could take your natal chart and develop a an elixir just based on your chart for you specifically to work on your particular problems so this this whole thing of celestial agriculture, growing plants, um, cultivating specific types of energy that um, will be medicinal for, you know, what you're trying to treat. Um, Temper of Herbs book goes into it a little bit, but that's more from the humoral medicine side of things. Um, but the connection between astrology and alchemy uh, goes way back. Um, not only what the planets infuse into substances, but also times of working. Um, processes will go better during certain times than others. Um, so the whole thing is is gardening, in a sense, but gardening by the stars. Can you tell us more about those uh, moon cycle or zodiac energies on alchemical operations? And if you have any insight into how those might be agriculturally applied, that'd be very valuable. Well, the moon is probably the most significant. Uh, The moon cycle, um, you know, as the moon is waxing, it tends to draw things up. So processes like distillation, sublimation, um, extractions, these are all drawing things up and out. So uh, during a waxing moon, you'd want to do those types of processes um, 
during the waning moon, you know, things are getting pushed down. So things like uh, crystallization of salts, uh, calcination, um, those processes proceed better during a, a waning moon. Um, and in addition, you know, what sign the moon is in, the moon kind of modifies that. So if you're working with a, uh, say, a solar plant, um, you could work during a time when the moon is particularly influenced by the sun. Um, say in not just a full moon, but you know maybe it's the full moon in Leo, or or some phase of the moon in Leo. So you get that extra um, solar influence. Other than that, you know, like I say, you can develop formulas based on natal horoscopes. Um, it was popular in the Renaissance area. Um, who, uh, Culpepper, for example, gives a, uh, a process of developing a medicine based on based on your astrological chart. You know, if you have planets here and there, it, he gives you recommendations of how to formulate a medicine based on your chart. And uh, his instruction is given in the um, his complete herbal. So Culpepper's complete herbal um, tells you how to go about creating elixirs based on your uh, natal horoscope. There's quite a bit out there on on gardening by the moon and things like that. Um, generally, whenever the moon is in a water or sign is, is good. So uh, are you familiar with the biodynamic preparations and their timing in association to season, like the burying of a cow horn filled with manure during the winter, exhumed in the spring? The burying yeah, of a cow they, horn filled with, and can you relate that to what you've written on uh, the cycles of seasonal energies and what you call a positive and negative phase? Yeah, yeah, they they relate directly. Each of the planets go through their their cycles of phases, and not only that, but you know, in phase to each other. So you may have, you know, Saturn full in respect to the moon. So you have a full Saturn with respect to the moon. Um, and there are energetics involved there that will strengthen that Saturnian energy due to that link up with the moon. Um, and the moon goes around, you know, once a month. So you have that available at, for each planet at any time. Um, going around the month, uh, the moon will become, in a sense, full to a particular planet uh, within the month. And so you get not only a, you know, the solar full moon, but you could have a Saturnian full moon or a, a Marshall full moon, um, which enhances that particular energy, um, just like the full moon enhances the solar energy uh, of that particular time and in that particular sign. So 
um, there are a lot of a lot of fine tuning that you can do using planets um, to do extractions or uh, other works in the laboratory um, or even harvesting you know materials. I'd like to go through the different uh, animal and plant parts that are used in the uh, foundational biodynamic preps and see just if you have any um, just kind of thoughts on any of them just in passing. So with the cow or bovine, we're using the horns, the hooves, uh, the skull, the small intestine, the mesentery, and the manure. Do you have any thoughts on any of those parts? They all animal animal materials have a lot of volatile salts, and that's one of their key advantages. In that they contain so much volatile salt, it's easy to obtain, and and that volatile salt helps to penetrate the tissues much more deeply and carry your tinctures in much more deeply than they would otherwise. So um, that's one of the key advantages to all of those um, animal preparations is the abundance of volatile salt that they offer, especially things like hooves and horns and things. Um, and you'll see in, in a lot of the alchemical iconography, uh, you'll see you know, deers with, you know, stags with big racks of horns. You'll see unicorns and things. Um, they're pointing to that effect, that, that sharpness, that the salts. And, and they used to get the volatile salts from horns, like deer horns. Um, in fact, in Germany, they still use it as a, a cooking aid. They call it Hirschhorn salts, uh, which means basically deer antler salt. Um, and it is uh, an ammonium carbonate, ammonium chloride, volatile ammonia salts, basically. And they're all very penetrating and will carry your tinctures much more deeply than, than otherwise. Um, and like I, I mentioned, um, medicinally, the volatile salt itself can stimulate all 12 or um, all 15 of the uh, dosha principles. So in their own right, you know, those salts themselves are very powerful. Um, I think George Starkey worked on that problem of deriving the volatile salts from plants for about 20 years, um, working from information that Van Helmont had written, but very obscurely. He finally figured out that all you had to do was take your water-leached salts and saturate them with the essential oil and let it digest in the open. Don't close it up. Um, and over time, the, the oil will become fixed and the salts will become volatile. And then you're well on your way to making the vegetable stone. All you have to do is um, add the mercury. Mm -hmm. Continue to imbibe. Yeah. And you mentioned the the stag. Uh, we uh, in the foundational preps we uh, used the st uh, stag's bladder. Do you have any uh, thoughts on why uh, there'd be a focus on the bladder? Mm, no, not offhand. Unless uh, you know, the contents, maybe uh, a lot of ammonia salts in the bladder and and in urine. Uh, there are whole works on on urine. 
um, from which you can derive quite a bit of volatile salt. So it's really a matter of getting those volatile salts. They're very important uh, key issues in working with alchemical products that have the depth of penetration that can be derived using um, the volatile salt. And for the botanicals, we use uh, yarrow, chamomile, stinging nettle, oak bark, dandelion, valerian, and horsetail reed. Do you have any impressions on any of those that stand up? Not outstanding. I use those myself. They're all easy to work with, friendly plants. Um, They're abundant, and they cover the whole spectrum of planetary energies. Um, Mm -hmm. No, um, I like working with all of those. (laughs) I use pretty much the same list myself. And then uh, the only mineral that's in, or the only pure mineral um, in form that is in the preps is the crushed uh, quartz crystal. Uh, if you have any impressions on that, quartz crystal in what way? You mean? Uh, well, we'll take it, and uh, it's it's ideal if it's in a uh, perfect form, and then crushed into a fine powder, uh, made into a paste, and then filled in a horn, um, and then buried during the summer. And we bring it up and use it to produce uh, foliar sprays. But just if you have any thoughts on either that, the process, or just um, uh, quartz crystal as it fits into greater alchemy. Uh, I'm not familiar with the process, but I know uh, quartz crystal uh, you know, has a lot of beneficial effects as far as concentrating energies into things. Crushed up, I think it's more of a um, like a medium for separating particles so that they will be able to sublimate easier, dispersing them out kind of uh, in a homeopathic way, in a sense. You know, you're using the quartz crystals to disperse your medicines out, kind of like a homeopathic dilution. Um, and in that sense, they'll become more uh, penetrating and work on deeper levels. But yeah, I'm not not familiar with the uh, method that you described. Earlier, we kind of briefly touched on water. I was wondering what your thoughts are on water. How important is it? Uh, any ways you you uh, might influence it? Oh yeah, water is the life. You know, without water, we're doomed. Um, And there are so many types of water and things you can do with water. Um, There's a book, The Golden Chain of Homer, by uh, Anton Kirschweger. You can find it online. It's all about the water work, where you can take simple water, rainwater, or dew, or hail, or snow, a natural water source, and ferment it. I mean, you wouldn't think water can ferment, but it will. Uh, and then once it's fermented, you distill out the uh, the elements and purify those. Um, you'll end up with the fire, air, earth, and water of water. Um, and those could be subdivided into salt, sulfur, and mercury of 
the individual elements. So you end up with 12 fractions, which are assigned to the zodiac, uh, and each one has its character. They're, they're each uh, slightly different, even though they they all look like water, they all taste like water, they have slightly different properties. Um, and I've seen this um, even following through with some instrumentation. Um, I had access to a, a, a something they call a differential scanning calorimeter. It can accurately measure melting points and uh, boiling points of things, uh, heat flow through materials in general. Uh, but running the different samples of water through this instrument, um, each one gave us quite different, uh, unique fingerprint, each one a little bit different. Um, so there are differences in between these things. They all look the same, but they are distinctly different. Um, so the use of water, um, you, there's a whole, <laughs> I have a whole work just on waterworks that, I hope to publish at some point. Um, there are a lot of things that you can derive from just simple water. Um, and it becomes medicinal. You know, the different fractions that you can obtain from water each have their um, astrological correspondence uh, and their medicinal activities. So, uh, so like I say, the whole works you can do just using rainwater inherently safe and simple to do. Um, uh, you can't really poison yourself on water, uh, but once you separate it out into the various fractions, um, there are distinct differences between, say, the, you know, the fire of air of water as opposed to the water of water or the uh, salt of water of water. Um, they all have their distinct differences and can be incorporated into formulas you know so for example uh, maybe you have a material you're working for a skin disorder um, Capricorn is a good candidate for uh, skin problems so you may use the Capricorn fraction of the water as part of your uh, formulation uh, the makeup water in your formulation, um, which will give it a particular twist and focus um, with that Capricorn energy. Uh, <clears throat> you can take the waters, you know, the different fractions of water separately as medicinal agents in their own right, uh, but very often use them to incorporate into other formulas and uh, bring out specific planetary or zodiacal types of uh, influence uh, just using water. Earlier you mentioned cell salts. What What is a cell salt? Cell salts are um, a group of cells that uh, make up our cells. Um, was in the 1800s, a German chemist uh, called Schussler uh, they're studying the cremated remains of bodies and he found that there are 12 main salts in the cremated humated uh, human remains uh, 
And each of these salts have their medicinal qualities. Uh, later on, uh, another another worker named uh, Carrie assigned a zodiac sign to each of the twelve, and and so we have now a a zodiac of salts, and and each salt is in a sense attuned to a particular. Uh, Zodiac sign. So potassium phosphate um, is one of the salts and it's assigned to Aries. Um, silica, another salt assigned to Sagittarius. Magnesium phosphate to Leo. Um, the thing is that each of these salts are in our tissues and they have specific functions. Um, so there's a whole medicinal system of biochemic cell salt um, remedies which can be used to um, affect changes in the body just using the, the cell salts. I mean, it's a whole medical paradigm in itself using various cell salts to enhance organ functions or specific uh, system problems uh, because different tissues require different types of salts. So, for example, a lot of the uh, nerve tissues, uh, things involved with uh, transmission of nerve signals uh, rely on phosphates. So uh, there are several phosphates in the 12 Schussler salts, which are used for um, treating disorders in uh, nervous system problems. And they all have their, you know, different utilities in different organs and systems. So um, based on your chart, you can determine what types of salts you need. Um, and these 12 salts, they make up all the cells in our body. Um, and they have their specific places where they like to hang out. Different tissues have different salts uh, in in abundance. And if you start to uh, have disorders in a particular system, you can correct them by using a homeopathic dilution of these different uh, mineral salts. As general medicinals, um, a lot of people will take just their sun sign salt because we, we use that up a lot. Um, in addition, people use uh, their uh, the salt corresponding to the sign that uh, their Saturn is in. So their natal chart will show where Saturn is. You would take that zodiac sign's particular mineral salt because we tend to leak a lot of energy through, through uh, that, through Saturn, also, in our um, south node, uh, we tend to leak a lot of energy, too. So uh, it's common to take the cell salt corresponding to whatever sign your south node is in. Um, there is a, something called a cell salt bridge. Uh, the idea being that during the year, you know, during digestion, you're, you're in... You're in the womb, and 
through mom, you're getting experience with these salts as, as they come up each month. So, you know, this month, this salt comes up and, and basically you're receiving instruction from, from your mother inside the womb. You're receiving this instruction how to utilize this salt. Uh, and then you're born and suddenly you have this gap of three salts that you're missing out that, that information. You didn't get the memo, <laughs> uh, because you're no longer in the womb. You're in there for nine months. And so you have this gap of three months and that gap, you tend to be uncoordinated in those three salts, how to use those. Uh, so some people take what they call the cell salt bridge and it bridges that gap. So, uh, you know, you're born on, uh, I don't say, uh, say you're born in Aries. So you would take Aries, Taurus and Gemini as a bridge to, um, fill in where you didn't get the instruction from the mother. Uh, and it brings a uh, balance to those three salts that you're kind of uncoordinated with, uh, in use. So a lot of ways of using the cell salts to, um, provide medicinal action. Um, you can also incorporate those into, uh, standard herbal tinctures, you know, so, uh, I know, say you have something, uh, dealing with nervous issues again, um, you could use the some of the phosphate salts to um, augment your herbal tinctures. Use the homeopathic dilutions um, incorporated right into your tinctures. Couple questions: uh, Where can one find the um, zodiacal correspondence to each? Um, there's a book called. Uh, the Zodiac and the Salts of Life, I think it is. Okay. And uh, the next question is, uh, I'm assuming that those available on the market are not uh, derived from um, human remains? No. No, these okay. are... Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, they're common salts. I mean, they're everywhere. Okay. Um, okay. And what they do is... Is uh, well, we'll take ones iron phosphate, for example, is uh, associated with Pisces, um, and in the the normal way, they'll take iron and dissolve it into phosphoric acid, and then crystallize that, and you have iron phosphate, and then that's put through the homeopathic dilution process. Um, alchemically speaking, they're dead. Because they, they start out with a smelted metal. Um, they're all nice, high quality, um, you know, as far as purity. But alchemically speaking, you know, the iron has been smelted and you've driven off the sulfur and mercury and you end up with just the, the corpse, uh, which they will go ahead and make, you know, their iron phosphate and sell that. At Paralab, we started with living minerals. So we began with iron pyrite, turned that into a vitriol, and and then turned that into an acetate and distilled out its sulfur and mercury, refined 
that sulfur mercury of iron and and then used a very chemically pure iron phosphate which was USP grade but now we reimbibed its sulfur mercury back onto the dead body and in a sense resuscitated that salt and now that salt goes through the homeopathic dilutions um, so now you get a living mineral instead of the dead one um, and it's much more active much more penetrating uh, so those are those are the salts that we offer um, part of my uh, part of my duties at Paralab was to keep samples of everything that we produced and so I have samples that I kept through the years which were the set of the 12 actually 21 mineral salts and it's the nature of homeopathic dilutions that a little bit on the front end goes far. I mean, I have, if I have 10 milliliters of the mother tincture, that can make several million gallons of actual end product. You know, because you dilute 1 to 10, 1 to 10, 1 to 10 out seven times. Um, so I have small vials that I kept of the mother tinctures and we, uh, we dilute those out to the um, 7x uh, tinctures. So we have the living mineral salts uh, available here, all 12. But actually, we have 21. We're going to expand the line. Um, we actually made 21 salts there at Paralab. So these are, are uh, salts that derive from the work there at Paralab, actually. What are your thoughts on metals as the, quote, semen of the gods? And, and do you believe in this concept of Ormus? Uh, and if, if, you, if you do, do you subscribe to the belief that it should be given to plants and that a person should consume the plant as a mediator as opposed to consuming the Ormus directly? I like that idea better, feeding it to the plants and then taking the plants. Um, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about Ormus, um, I've heard good and bad about it. Um, most of the good stuff I've heard is in conjunction with growing plants. Uh, I've had a couple of people who were actually two that died, I think, because they were taking too much Ormus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have my, my doubts about it. Um, I mean, it's very convenient that the only way to test if you have it is a special thing that they can only do in Russia, you know, um, special process to find out if it's there or not. Otherwise, um, you know, I dabbled around with it and my testing, all I showed was really magnesium hydroxide coming out as the major constituent. I didn't say anything really special about it. Um, so, like I said, I'm kind of on the fence about the whole Ormus thing. Um, there's a lot of people examining it, so I figure I'll let them do that. I'm looking at the more traditional stuff. Um, but like I say, I, I've heard good and bad. I know a person who worked very heavily in the in the industry, you know, uh, making it uh, on a large scale available. Uh, and after three years of 
intensive work in that direction, uh, his takeaway was that it was all BS. So, uh, so like I say, I'm kind of skeptical about the whole Ormus thing. In Real Alchemy, you write that the earliest, earliest descriptions of alchemy link it to the transformations in matter through the influence of light or spirit or fire. It is the metamorphosis of matter orchestrated by spirit. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, the uh, the earliest words that describe alchemy uh, relate it to some kind of activity which was unknown and attributed to spiritual activity or the activity of fire and light. Those were all connected. So the idea that matter can be influenced by uh, spiritual principles, either projected onto it or focused onto it in some way to cause changes in the material itself. And that's really, you know, it. I mean, we influence the product ourselves. And so uh, a lot of that energetic infusion comes from us. You know, there's a little bit of us in everything that we make. And it goes back to ancient Egyptian stuff. Uh, I wrote something about uh, the Eye of Horus. I know most people have seen the Eye of Horus. It's a very common motif in Egyptian um, stuff. But as the story goes, uh, Horus and Set, Set was the uh, evil uncle who usurped the throne of Horus's father, Osiris. And and Horus and Set were always doing battle as Horus was trying to reclaim the throne. And during one of the battles, Set plucks out one of the eyes of Horus and he rips it into pieces and throws it on the ground. And, and later, Thoth, the great patron of alchemy, comes by and he collects all the pieces of, of the eye and he puts them together again. And it becomes known as the whole eye. And now it's a symbol of medical resurrection in a sense. Um, in fact, our symbol for prescription is kind of a, a, a takeoff of the eye of Horus. And the little pieces of the eye that were ripped off uh, were shown hieroglyphically as uh, fractions. And so a medical prescription would see these little fragments of the eye depicted as hieroglyphics, and that would uh, provide the proportions needed to make this medical formula. Well, if you add up the fractions of the eye, they only come up to 63 sixty-fourths. There's a missing sixty-fourth, and that was said to be the heka, or the magic that sauce infused into it to put it back together that last missing 64th. And so that's that's true with everything we make. Our heka, our, our magical power, becomes infused into the stuff that we're making. So that's why it's important to go into alchemical works with the right frame of mind. Um, just like cooking, you know, if you go in and you cook dinner and you're in a really bad mood, you know, later you're going to end up with indigestion. Whereas if you go in and you're cooking, you know, from a, 
a loving attitude and a high-minded spirit, um, the food will taste, you know, heavenly. So it's that hekka, our own magic, that we impress on things, which is kind of a, a hidden or missing ingredient that people don't realize, um, that we actually influence the material um, as we're making it. I really liked that section uh, in your book where you, where you covered that. Can you uh, go further into the Eye of Horus as a, a formulation tool and that those 64ths and just, uh, I don't know if it, how it might align with uh, herbal harmonies, things like that? Yeah, I was thinking one day that it would make a nice template for producing herbal extracts. You know, in, in making compound medicines, you have like your basic herb and then you have various support herbs uh, and tonics that, that go along and support the basic medicinal herb. Um, you know, in Chinese medicine, they have the emperor herb and then they have various uh, attendants and uh, super supervisors that go along with the, the emperor herb to do its thing. Um, so a lot of the formulas seem kind of, uh, I don't know, haphazard. It's like, you know, take one part of this, have a part of this, have a part of that, have a part of that, one part of this, half a part of that, quarter part of that. Um, it seems kind of just random. So I thought one day that using the Eye of Horus as a template would be really nice to make a line of medicines because um, the way they're fractioned out. Uh, so you have the the eye itself, the pupil of the eye it's looking at at the um looking at the problem and that's one half of the formulation so that would be your main medicinal herb um, and then you have the white of the eye that's you know towards the nose um, that becomes one quarter um, and then you have the eyebrow and that becomes one eighth of the herb mixture um, then you have the other side of the white of the eye on the outer edge and that becomes um, one sixteenth um, and then you have the little um, little curl at the bottom there that becomes one thirty second and then the little uh, tear duct drop that becomes the one sixty fourth and so you can use those proportions to uh, formulate a particular blend. So like I say, the pupil is looking at the problem. That'll be your main herb. The first part of the white of the eye is looking at where you want to go. Um, so that part of the herb would be something that is attuned to the particular organ or system you want to treat. And then the eyebrow just as it protects the eye from things falling into it, will be a protective herb for the particular organ or system that you're treating. Uh, and then the other part of the white of the eye, which is on the outer edge, uh, it works with the inner portion of the white of the eye. And so it becomes a, you want to choose a synergist that works with that portion of the herb. Um, and then the little curly cue thing that comes down there um, that gives you allowance to adjust the herb 
for taste or hot cold properties, something like that. Uh, and then the little tear duct portion that drops down is uh, is where you put in like a, a catalyst, something to spark everything off. Generally, something like black pepper is a good one, googaloo resin, um, oil of gold if you have it. Those are all good um, catalytic materials that will spark off uh, the rest of the formula. Uh, so using those basic formulations, you could develop a whole line of different products for different processes, depending what the pupil of the eye is looking at. That's all explained also in the uh, Temper of Herbs, I think. Yeah, I'd love to go to Temper of Herbs next. Um, I'm going to read a few quotes to kind of introduce it. Uh, quote, the methodology of the present study employs modern thermogravimetric analysis combined with the classical analysis by fire or spagyric anatomy, as described by alchemists. By quantifying the, quote, elements of a plant obtained by the distillation, one might find a correlation to the temperament as assigned in the classical sources like Galen or Avicenna. The main intent of the research project was to unite humoral theory with alchemical theory using modern analytical equipment in order to develop a method whereby a medicinal plant could be analyzed to determine its humoral balance and intensity. Uh, I'd love to see more of this kind of work. Uh, if you would, please tell us about the work and your experience with it. Um, yeah, I was I was reading one day in the Avicenna, he wrote the Canon of Medicine, uh, back around 900. Um, and he was talking about the melancholic humor. And at one point he called it a calx or an ash in the blood. And it, it was one of those aha moments, you know, suddenly. Um, because it's very common to talk about distillation and distilling out the phlegm the phlegm water, and then suddenly he's calling this ash the calx, which, you know, in alchemy, that that's pretty specific terminology. So I had this idea that, you know, if, the, if you have the ash and you have your phlegm, those are common terms in dealing with herbal alchemy. Um, Isaac Holland talks about separating a material by distillation um, into its four elements. And so I wondered if if I followed that process, took an herb and split it off into its four elements, um, and the four elements represent various um, combinations of hot, cold, wet, and dry, you know, the fundamental qualities. And medicines used to be graded that way, you know, you could have a, a medicine that was hot, cold, wet, or dry, um, and in varying degrees. So not all hot plants are the same. So I could take a little cinnamon and put it on your tongue, and you say, oh, yeah, that's warming. I could put the same amount of ghost pepper on your tongue and, and watch your face turn all red and steam come out your ears. Uh, that's very hot. So there are degrees. You know, the cinnamon would be hot in the first degree, ghost pepper would be hot in the fourth degree. Uh, the same applies to cold, you know, there are cold plants, uh, first degree, second, third, fourth degree. 
Uh, there are drying plants or medicines, um, four degrees. And the four degree medicines tend to be, you have to be careful with those. They can cause tissue damage. We generally operate around the first degree, first degree hot, cold, wet, and dry. And if we get out of that zone, we start to develop problems. Um, and so when you treat it, you want to, you know, use the opposite to bring it back to a balance. So if you have too much dryness, you want to add some moisture. But you you don't want to add too much or you overshoot and you develop problems on the other end. Um, so they have this graded system of four degrees, uh, hot, cold, wet, and dry. And they would classify medicines as being, say, hot in the first degree and dry in the second degree, or hot in the third degree and wet in the second degree. Um, and I wondered, you know, if I took a plant, distilled out the four elements, and take those elements and divide them into the four elemental qualities. So fire represents hot and dry. So if I get a certain percentage of distillate representing the fire element from my plant, I take that percentage, divide it in two, half of it is hot and half of it is dry. So I proceed along with the other plant uh, constituents. You know, the phlegm comes out. And that's the uh, the water element, which water is cold and wet. So if I get 10% phlegm distill out, 5% of that is cold, 5% of that is wet. So I proceed, I tabulate up all the um, elements and their hot, cold, wet, dry proportions and add those up algebraically. Hot, cold, cancel each other out. And wet and dry, cancel them out, um, and they end up with with a figure being, you know, hot, cold, wet, or dry, um, and a certain quantity um, from which I can assign its uh, humoral temperament. So I say, I distill a plant, and I end up with so much hot and so much dry. And I divide those by a, a correction factor and I find out that this plant is hot in the second degree and dry in the first degree based on that. <clears throat> so I was interested to see how these play out or how they match the traditional assignments for herbs uh, as being hot, cold, wet, and dry in the varying degrees. So I took a bunch of plants and did this process of um, separating out the four elements. And I had access to a thermogravimetric analyzer, which basically mirrors the process of fractional distillation. I can tell, uh, I can tell the furnace to heat up at 20 degrees a minute from room temperature to 700 degrees. And it will follow that program. And my sample is inside the furnace, but it's suspended by a wire hooked to a very sensitive uh, um, balance that can measure down to a tenth of a milligram. So as it's heating up, it's changing weight because it's losing volatiles. And 
this is uh, recorded by the computer, and I get a printout showing uh, the weight loss as the temperature rises up. And in every case of distilling plants, I get very distinct phlegm coming out, then the white spirit, which is the air, and then the red oil, and then what's left over is the calx. Um, in every case, it follows that same uh, division of these four elements, um, but in varying proportions. So some plants have a lot of phlegm, some have very little. Some have a lot of the oil, which is the fire element. Uh, some have very little. So tabulating these all up, um, I found out that it was kind of biased towards being hot and wet. And so when I looked into it more, um, it happens that where the white spirit comes out, which is the sanguine uh, humor of the plant, um, right at that same temperature, there's a release of gas, of carbon monoxide, CO2, methane, um, all these gases can be released during the distillation. And the alchemists wouldn't have been able to measure that back in the day. So uh, they did note it in the form of warning you about bursting vessels and things at certain times and temperatures. Uh, so I had to re redo the whole thing and actually do the physical distillation. And there were some problems about when to separate the different fractions off, um, took some refinement. Um, but now things were coming out like they were supposed to. So hot, dry plants were coming out hot and dry. Cold, wet plants were coming out cold and wet. Um, getting much more uh, close to the traditional assignment of particular plants. Um, so with some tweaking, you know, I'm, I'm going to tweak the formula or process a little bit more, and I think I can get more accurate results, but... Um, it's, it looks very promising that you could use this process of distillation to determine the, uh, the temper of an herb in the sense of its hot, cold, wet, dry, um, constituents. Um, and all this is developed, you know, in the, the book on, on the temper of herbs. Um, and that's, that's phase one. Phase two is, is a, refinement of the process, uh, which will combine data from the um, thermogravimetric analysis combined with the distillation process to get much more accurate results. Um, I have a, a equipment design change, uh, better scale. So uh, phase two will incorporate all of that stuff. Um, and the final test will be in in a compound medicine. You know, this is all great for singles and simples, uh, but what happens when you combine medicines into a, uh, a combination? Uh, so say you have 10 herbs that go up into this, you know, final product. Is it just the algebraic sum of the hot, cold, wet, dry properties of them? Or how does that work out? And this is a problem that stretches back to Galen, Roman times. Uh, a lot of people worked on 
how to figure out what is the temper of a compound medicine. And I have a few old compound medicines that have made up and they have, uh, at least the books, you know, the old texts tell you that this is a medicine which is hot in the second degree and dry in the first or, or whatever it is. Um, so I have those compound medicines and I'll run it through this process and see if they come out, you know, as advertised as they're supposed to be. So that'll be really the final test of the method, uh, if it can actually determine the temper of compounded medicines, uh, along with simples. Uh, in which case, you know, if it works out, then we could assign uh, tempers to medicines that, you know, they didn't have in the old days, things from South America or um, China, uh, things that they didn't even know existed. Ginkgo. <laughs> Ginkgo was thought to be a fossil until, you know, not very long ago. Um, and now I have its temper. <laughs> I distilled some ginkgo leaves to figure out its uh, temper qualities. What is the uh, temper of ginkgo? Oh, I don't know offhand. I'd have to look at no, it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, is, is it. Is it in the book or no? Uh, I think it is, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we do a we do a lot of uh, ginkgo here at uh, Gaia Herbs. Yeah. So, but, but like I say, it gives the uh, gives the ability to maybe assign that type of a you know designation, hot, cold, wet, and dry, and and in a particular degree, to herbs that you know are unlisted in the traditional sense, um, herbs that they didn't know existed. You know, especially a lot of the South American herbs that are becoming available now, things like mushrooms that uh, weren't available. Um, so um, it has a lot of potential. And uh, I I think I can tweak it to where I'm getting uh, good results. I'm getting pretty good results now, but. Uh, no, I think it's, I think it's a method. phenomenal idea. Uh, well, um, well, actually, where's the best place uh, for people that are interested in purchasing your books? Um, you can get them at Amazon. Um, the do you, um, do you sell them directly? No. Okay. There's another place, uh, Revelor Press. Okay. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Uh, you can find Robert at spagiricus.com. And of course, you can find the Biodynamic Guild at biodynamicguild.org. Thanks.